You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and on this week's episode, I talk with Alyssa Loria, an archaeologist in New York City who runs a firm called Chrysalis Archaeology. Alyssa is the person the city or developers call in when they're doing a major construction project to dig around and search for anything of historical significance before they start building on the site. We had a really, really fascinating conversation about how most archaeology is done in the U.S., about filling in gaps in history, and just generally how we think about cities and their past. But I also want to give you all a heads up about something. Early in the interview, I asked an amazingly dim-witted question, which Alyssa responded to very graciously. And I decided to leave it in, first because it's just a kind of funny moment at my own expense, but also because this is a show about people's jobs, and part of having a job, as we all know, is getting asked really dumb questions about it. So I hope you enjoy. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Alyssa Loria. I'm an urban archaeologist. Uh, the majority of my work focuses in and around New York City and the tri-state area. And who exactly, what, what kind of an archaeology firm do you work for? Um, I'm actually the owner of the firm. It is a small cultural resources management firm, and it's called Chrysalis Archaeology. And we work throughout the area, mostly on municipal projects, government projects, city-state funded projects. Interesting. So if someone has an archaeology problem or an archaeology issue, they can pay you to come and take care of it. I don't know if I want to call it a problem or an issue, but essentially uh, with a basis in federal law, any municipal monies, city, state, uh, federal funds, your taxpayer dollars, any of those monies that are going to be used in projects, you have to take into, that project has to take into consideration how it may or may not impact above ground and below ground historic and cultural resources. The laws are in place to, in a sense, protect our cultural heritage. And that is when these projects were like a little checkbox. Well, um, are we going to have any impact on above ground resources? Think architecture, historic buildings, or below ground resources, archaeology. Okay, and so that's the point where you guys come in. So how many archaeologists do this kind of work? The majority of all archaeology in the United States is done as cultural resources management. Really? Uh, yes. Interesting. So is, is it academic or is it kind of, you know, is it academics coming into? Is it people with firms like yours? How does that? It's usually firms. Okay. Many archaeologists work with engineering firms or there are small to mid-level archaeology and cultural resources companies throughout the United States. Um, the majority of work is not done by academics. Okay. Uh, particularly United States archaeology. It's almost exclusively done on these large infrastructure, large-scale development projects that are happening across America. That's fascinating. I never would have guessed that. So how? So, what is the career path that you, you end up doing this kind of work? I mean, do you go into becoming an archaeology student knowing that this is what I'll eventually be doing on these kind of municipal projects? Or I guess I should just ask, how did you get into <laughs> I'm going to say most of us just end up getting there. Okay. Uh, many of us, most of us, have 
you know, went in when you're going to go for a degree in archaeology, you're thinking, I'm going to work at a university or you're going to do research. That's going to be your primary focus. But the reality is the majority of archaeological jobs in the United States are with companies working on these technical projects, construction projects. We're on construction sites or we're going in before construction projects happen. So I started on an academic path and I sort of fell in to this type of archaeology where I just I bit, literally was said, submit a bid to do this project. We need an archaeologist. You should submit a bid to do the project. And I won the project. And one thing led to another, and now I own my own company doing this. So what kind of archaeology did you start off studying? Was it this sort of, you know, urban municipal type work or was it, I'm I'm assuming you weren't, you know, looking for, you know, dinosaur bones out in Montana or something like that. Myth, myth. Myth, exactly. No dinosaurs for archaeologists. That's paleontologists. Paleontologists, sorry. Oh, my God. That's terrible on my head. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone makes that mistake now. This is is the stereotypical, like, thing you have to deal with at at the cocktail party. Exactly. I'm so sorry. That's fine. Uh, Initially, I was very interested in Mayan archaeology, Mm -hmm. but I've always been interested in New York City history. My father was a history teacher, so I was always being told little bits and pieces of New York City history and the built environment, the buildings and the environment around us. And um, I did a local field school that was on an old Dutch farmhouse in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed it. And then slowly but surely, I started learning about all the archaeology that was happening within the cities about the cities. It's not just the archaeology is happening in the cities. It's the archaeology of New York City. It's the archaeology of Philadelphia, of Boston. How did these cities become? What can we learn? What can archaeology and history together teach us about the development of how we got to where we are today? So I imagine there are a lot of interesting sites that you come across or have come. What's like... What's one of your favorite sites you've ever worked on? Such a loaded question. I know, Um, they're like children. You probably have, but... I have been exceptionally fortunate to work on some really great sites in New York City. And I am the first person to say that I never would have been able to have done these projects if I had not done cultural resources management. If I had done gone an academic route, if I had been an academic, I never would have been able to have worked in City Hall Park. And City Hall Park was an incredibly fascinating history, incredibly fascinating site to excavate its multiple layers of history. It is first used in the 1600s from the settlement of New Amsterdam. It's always been used for public purposes. It was the site of jails, poorhouses, British barracks during the Revolutionary War, and then the municipal icon for New York City. So you have all this multi-layered history there. So I think it'd be fun to kind of go through that whole how you actually excavated and explored this place. But I I want to start by kind of asking about the end of it. What did you find at City Hall Park? What was it that you kind of discovered as you went through? (laughs) Everything. We did find beneath City Hall evidence of the almshouse, the 18th century poorhouse. If you were poor, impoverished in the 18th century, um, essentially you were sent to an almshouse. You could be widowed, orphaned, uh, you know, pregnant out of wedlock, uh, diseased, ill, mentally ill, all reasons of, you know, cause to be placed into a poorhouse. And in the poorhouse, you were provided a uniform that often had the letters of your first name on it, and you were assigned labor tasks to 
you know, make you a productive citizen once again. Uh, hard work is good for the soul, so you would do productive labor. But the almshouse stood until 1797, the first almshouse, and they then built City Hall on that location. When they were working, doing uh, finishing work in the basement of City Hall and they were taking up the floors and started excavating, we found deposits associated with the 18th century almshouse. Uh, you know, pair of glasses, wire-framed rim glasses. We found bone button blanks, which was evidence of the labor, the tasks that the people in the almshouse were doing. They would take bones and they would make punch buttons out of them to make buttons. Um uh, 1786 British coin was beneath the floorboards. Um, and we also found a lot of interesting um, materials associated with the workers building City Hall itself, uh, and almost in a way the 19th century construction worker. I, I just want to clarify, before you started doing the work, did you guys know that the almshouse was there, or was that actually a discovery unto itself? City Hall park itself is very well documented. There's all these maps. It's the only archaeological historic district in New York City. There had been previous archaeology done. So when they were going in to do the work uh, to rehab portions of City Hall, they knew that they were going to be doing archaeology. They knew that this was potentially an issue. Um, so not, I don't want to say it's not an issue, that uh, there was the potential to find archaeological resources. So we know many areas... Every project starts with an assessment. Um, sometimes it's part of what we call an environmental impact statement or a straightforward cartographic or a map study, a documentary assessment where you go and learn as much as you can about a site, the history of the site, the development of the site to make a determination of archaeological sensitivity. Is there a potential to find buried cultural resources? And that's step number one. So you generally have a sense when you get to the next phase, which is working and doing the excavation on a site, that there might be a potential for certain types of archaeological resources to be found. Are there specific kinds of construction projects that need those assessments that they're going to ask about the archaeological significance? Or is it really any kind of construction in the city? In theory, it's limited to projects that use public monies. Mm -hmm. or occur within a historic district okay. in a known historic or cultural site. Okay, those are the two circumstances. That's in theory, but it seems like maybe... Sometimes it happens that there's no known history and something is stumbled upon or found. Uh, it has happened many years ago. They were building a hotel down on Spring Street and they found a cemetery. And in that case, they call you. And, and in that case, it wasn't specifically me, but in that case, an archaeological firm was brought in to handle the investigation. So let's go back to how this process unfolds then. So you come in and you do this assessment. What are, what are you kind of looking for? What are you, how do you assess whether or not <laughs> there, there's work to be done in, in, in a place? Start with the beginning or present day, and work your way backward, essentially. So your two endpoints, your oldest map that you can find that shows a property, and then your current map, and start filling in the blanks in between. So you almost want to create a timeline of development based on looking at historic maps. So you'll start with the present day, and then you might go back to, say, 1950, what was there, 1900, what was there. And you look for as many maps as you can to see what was on a property initially. And then there's the general history that is known of 
any, say, New York City neighborhood. You know, what happened in Fort Greene Park? So the Martyrs Monument, Revolutionary War era. So many of these histories are, you know, there's a general known history, but then you break it down and you really make it project-specific or property-specific. Where do you find all the maps? Thankfully, online now. (laughs) Many maps are... Online, high resolution. There are some fabulous websites for historic maps. Mm-hmm. Uh, Library of Congress has a number of maps online. The New York Public Library has a number of maps online. Uh, back in the old days, we used to go to the library, the 42nd Street map room, and you would look at the paper copies of the maps. But right now, a lot of it is done digitally. And so you you... You break out the digital maps, you you fill in as much of that timeline as possible, and you decide, okay, yeah, there, there's something to investigate here. What what comes next? When you, you write up basically your research, you write up what we call a phase 1A assessment, you write up your report, you've compiled all the history, you've compiled all the maps, you've taken what the proposed project is, and you've taken their project maps and you lay it over the current site, and you see where they're going to make impacts. How deep are they going to excavate? Are they not going to excavate at all? So you get a sense of where they're physically going to make an impact. And then you can make an assessment as to whether or not there's any resources that may or may not be impacted. If there is a potential to impact archaeological resources, you go to, um, and again, we label phases, like a phase 1A. A phase 1A is the assessment, then a phase 1B or a phase 2. So a phase 1B, the archaeologist will go in and do some testing, digging, uh, small holes, or monitoring, watching the ongoing construction to determine presence or absence of cultural resources. Is there ever a time that you're going through and kind of creating this historical timeline and you say to whoever's running the project, hey, you might not be about to disturb a historical resource, but I think that with some digging, we might actually find something or there might be something like buried deep under the site. Is there ever sort of a um, kind of an exploratory element of it or? Never go outside the construction footprint. They're there. not. Go- it, yeah, <laughs> it's it's as simple as that. It's like, nope, we're not going over there. So we're not going to go looking. <laughs> I guess that brings me to another question, which is, do you ever get the sense from, you know, the the the, the general contractor, the client, that they're kind of hoping you won't find something? Is there ever like that kind of, are, there, are they ever anxious that, oh, there's actually going to be a lot more work done because this place has some significance? I've seen both sides of it. Okay. There are some who are very concerned as to, will this slow my project down? Um, and the answer is, Not really. If you just deal with these resources and you deal with the archaeology up front, I'm a contingency planner. I go in, I have a plan. No matter what you're going to find, worst case scenario, I have an idea of how we're going to deal with it and what's the process that we have to go through. And so there are people who are concerned. And then there are other contractors I've worked with who are just genuinely excited where the construction workers want to help excavate when we find something. Do you and let it's them? it's like, no, not really. <laughs> it's, I imagine it's kind of delicate. Yeah, it's like, no, not really. So with City Hall Park, you, you've gotten to this point where at, at, at what point did you realize there, there would be this stuff from the Alms House that, that might be, I guess, you could potentially unearth? Uh, The first day they started digging, we started finding archaeological resources there. 
Okay, like what kind of stuff at that point? At that point, we started finding uh, building foundations and foundations, uh, um, remnants of what we call architectural features. So we found um, part of an old cistern, which is a big round shaft feature dug into the ground to hold rainwater to be used for task work. So it's basically, you know, just a buried structure that would be used to hold water. We found old paths, um, things that help us to recreate what the old landscape was like. And at what point did you figure out, okay, we're done here? Like, we, we've unearthed what there is to unearth. Oh, there's still more to unearth. There's always, is there always more? Most of the time, yes. So when do you know when to stop? You stop when they're no longer within the construction footprint. So excavation is going to go to 10 feet. You go to 10 feet. So you mentioned graveyards are something that come up frequently. I imagine those are particularly sensitive projects. How do you how do you go I, I guess how do you go about handling a graveyard when you encounter one? You always want to treat human remains with the utmost respect. There are city regulations, um, and each city has its own variation on the regulatory process, the rules you follow if you were to find human remains. And usually that involves calling the local police enforcement agency so they can rule out any police interest. Uh, coordinating with the medical examiner's office and event, you know, if it's a historic burial, et cetera, the aim and the goal is to revise or redesign the project so as to not disturb the human remains, to leave them in place, to leave them in situ. I imagine when you find a graveyard, though, it's not just about dealing with remains. It's also, there's a lot to learn, potentially, right? I mean, what what can you kind of find in in one? You can learn, um, depending on if you're going to do analysis. Um, It's a very sensitive issue. You want to see if you can identify the descendant community that um, may have some relation to this person who has been interred, uh, you usually move forward on avoidance where you don't go and you don't, you know, move forward. You're not going to disinter any human remains that are found. You're going to leave them in place. But if you were to do some sort of analysis, you can, you know, do aging, sexing, determination um, to get a little profile of the individual, how old the person may have been, male or female, whether or not they had been subject to disease, are there any grave goods associated with the person? Were they buried in a coffin? What uh, orientation was the body interred in? Did they have any jewelry or ritual objects with them? These are all things that you can look at in any funerary setting, whether it be here or elsewhere. Uh, but the Within New York City, particularly, the goal is always to redesign the project so as not to disturb the resting place of the human remains. That seems like it's simultaneously kind of a great thing to find because it's a very important part of our cultural history. But also, if you're actually the you know the city, it's also the scariest thing you can find because then you is there anything else you ever have to redesign a project around? Or sometimes if there are highly significant resources uh, or completely intact resources. It's always the preference to redesign around and to leave as much as possible in place as opposed to deconstruct it. So documenting in place is always the preference and removal is the last option if a project cannot be redesigned. What is the hardest site you've ever had to work on? What was the, the most challenging one? Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, I think 
all sites have inherent and different challenges uh, in terms of piecing apart the history. I know that in City Hall, we had very complex, strate- what we call stratigraphy, which is the different layers of the earth. So in the theory of stratigraphy is that each layer represents a different time or event. And you might see differences in what artifacts are in a layer or what the soil is like if there's, you know, a different type of soil or a different texture. Uh, so all of these um, in, in City Hall, because there was so much development and then taking items down and reuse of old structures, it was very complex. So a good example being an 18th century well was leveled to the 18th century, the 19th century ground surface and then used as a stopping point on a 19, late 19th century drainage system that they constructed. So it was reused. And then it was used to deposit garbage in in the early 20th century. And all of this is all mixing together and trying to like sort it out like a giant puzzle. Um, so that's one level of challenging and complexity. How do you keep track of all? I mean, I imagine this is just the the basic trade craft of archaeology, but how do you actually keep track of all that as you uncover it? Uh, it's a good thing that almost mo- almost every archaeologist is extremely detailed oriented. We love detail uh, forms. Okay. There's you really cannot beat writing down your notes with a pencil and a notebook. Something's just really good going old school. You want a pencil, you want a notebook, you want a tape measure uh, and forms that are basically you're not going to leave information out. If you have a blank piece of paper, you might forget to write something down. But if you have a really good detailed form, you make sure you cross your T's and dot your I's and we make a lot of maps and we take a lot of photos. Um, So all of those, as much documentation as possible and keeping track of as much detail as possible. So these weird inter- intertwined sites where things have sort of become like, you know, palimpsests through time. Those are difficult. That's one kind of challenge that you encounter. What's what's another kind of challenge? I don't call you'll it find? difficult. I just think it's or challenging. It's another challenge. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I love It's a good thing I like jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think time constraints are probably um, because, you know, we do work on construction sites. So there's mm-hmm. always that time balance and challenge because you don't, we're, we're not interested in, no one's here to, slow down development or construction. We're here to work with a project. And so I think sometimes time constraints are just, you know, kind of like making sure you get everything done in a, you know, segmented piece of time that you need to. So sometimes that's a bit of a challenge. Is that like the source of anxiety for for your line of work? It's like, I need to uncover this and get it documented within two weeks or? Usually a lot less than two weeks. <laughs> uh, I, I can, you know, just... Many, you know, friends I have working across the United States, we we all come under like, well, we've got a lot of work to do and we've got to get it done in X amount of time because they need to start because they can't start the next portion of their project until we move on. So there's a lot of moving parts in any construction or development project and everybody is relying on everybody else to do their piece of the job. So I think and because archaeology is such a great unknown, um, that's probably why it becomes more of a challenge. You never know until you're actually excavating just what you're going to find and how much you're going to find until you've absolutely seen it. You can hypothesize what you might find. You can estimate, I might find, random number, 100 artifacts. But 
that could easily be, wow, no, it's a thousand artifacts. And you never know until you're actually doing it. So working in construction where there's often, well, it takes X amount of time to lay 10 feet of pipe, you can make that estimate. You know how long it takes to install every 10 feet of pipe. You can't make those estimates with 100% accuracy in archaeology. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Because it's an unknown until you're actually there. I want to come back to the, this point you made at the very beginning, which I didn't realize because uh, it's my own ignorance, but that this is how most archaeology in the, in the United States happens. Is there a system for, you know, publishing your findings? Is there some re- repository for all of it? How does, you know, you go, you find these artifacts, you document the sites. What then becomes of that knowledge that you're, you're generating? Each city and state um, handles what becomes of the artifacts differently. So Boston has a city archaeologist, and they have a repository where materials from the city all reside. New York City now has an archaeological repository that's overseen by the Landmarks Preservation Commission. And any materials from city-owned sites can be curated at this repository. The end result of our project is largely a technical report that is filed with a regulatory agent, whether it be the state or it be a federal agency or the Landmarks Preservation Commission in New York. It does, you know, we don't produce public reports. We don't, um, you know, same with academics. They write for academic Mm -hmm. journals. They don't necessarily produce public reports. Yeah. Well, so you file the technical report. Mm -hmm. Is that then something that later on a historian would potentially come in and say, oh, this is what was found here. Here are the artifacts, how it was laid out? Or If they know where to look, yes. <laughs> uh, they're usually on file with historic, like the historic preservation offices. So each state has a historic preservation office. So work that we do in, say, New Jersey 
all our reports are on file with the New Jersey State Historic Preservation Office. And they're available to the public. You can request it. Whether many people know that it's available to the public or not is another story. Um, You can also, um, and in many instances, if you're working, say, a historic house that is publicly owned, the Parks Department or the people at you know, that work at that house, you always provide a copy to as many people as possible of your technical report. But so, I know it sounds complex oh, no, and no, no, back no. and forth. It's oh, like, no, oh, no, no, I'm thinking about, but it just, it's fascinating to me that like, you know, the way ultimately we find out the, the kind of the story of our cities or these places is by tearing them up and rebuilding them. And it gives you an opportunity to go in and say, ah, here's what was here before. And now we can fill in that 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 timeline a little bit better than we previously could. Yeah. And it's interesting because ultimately archaeology is destructive. You're deconstructing the present or what exists in the present to help reconstruct the past. And basically, in a way, tell the story of the past to see what you can learn from the objects that people left behind. Uh, you know, classically, when you know, I do a lot of school programs because I love to share what I, you know, archaeology is another way of learning history and what you can learn from people's objects. And I'll ask many of the students, if I were to go through all the garbage you threw out in your house over the course of two days, do you think I could learn something about you? <laughs> and the reality is, is like, you stop and you think, it's like, oh, yeah, you can learn a lot from somebody's garbage. You're going to learn a lot about my lacrosse addiction. That's like the just the grotesque amount of seltzer cans. See, there you go. So, but these are the little bits and pieces. And you always have to be careful not to put your own preconceived notions on it. But inherently, it's a destructive process. You have to pick it apart, take it apart to kind of study it. And But once you do that, it's gone forever, hence why documentation and note-taking and detail is oh so important. Part of your job is excavation and kind of finding the, these um, you know, artifacts. But that's not all of it, right? There's also this sort of preservation aspect of it too, correct? I'm heavily involved in historic preservation. Uh, you know, my own interests as a citizen and um, also, you know, research in general, it's, you know, another aspect of my overall interest is above ground preservation, the buildings that we inhabit, because it's all part of the story. It's all part of the overall landscape, the buildings we inhabit, the objects that we use, and they all basically create the context in which we operate, um, which we as human beings, they are the stage that we live our lives and that society happens and history happens. Um, So there is the preservation of that, the preservation of knowledge. But in terms of like the practical aspects of doing archaeology, we do the excavation and you, if you're lucky, find all these beautiful artifacts. Um, Mm -hmm. You have a very well-rounded deposit from a good context where you can, you know, identify the artifacts, perhaps put the pottery back together, broken pieces of pottery, reconstructing them into whole objects. And that will give you a better sense of what date it may have come from. What style is the pottery decorated with? Um, What technology created the decoration on the pottery? All of these are clues and pieces of the puzzle that come together to help you assign a date to an archaeological deposit and to put it into a greater context. So it's multiple steps of getting more and more of the pieces of the puzzle put together and then crafting or basically decoding that story from it. 
what's the the biggest thing can go wrong on a site? What can go awry? So many things. Um, you know, our whole business is about we know things are going to get deconstructed. Archaeology is destructive. And when you're on a construction site, um, it, it's easier to tear it down. Sh- like, think development in New York City. It is easier to tear it down, ship it out, and build it up new as opposed to rehab a building. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of symmetry to archaeology in that in that it's easier when you're doing the construction to kind of just the construction companies it's easier for them to just kind of dig it out where we want to sit there and like very carefully sort through because there's no piece of information that's too small you never know down the road what's going to be that one important piece of information so i think the biggest thing that can go awry is essentially lack of time um, yeah. which is something that we face all the time. Uh, so, <laughs> but just being forced to rush through that. Right, which, yeah, so we, we face that um, in any process. Things can always go wrong because once it's gone, it's gone forever. Yeah. You can't recreate it. Uh, so our whole mindset, our whole business is to record everything and document as best as possible, as thoroughly as possible, so things don't go awry, so we don't lose that information. The What you were just saying about how seemingly insignificant details can actually be incredibly important down line. It almost sounds like a detective novel, right? It sounds like that's sort of the same process, or right? It's, you know, the the dude who was standing across the street wearing the sort of like, you know, weird scarf across his face who no one paid attention to was actually the criminal. Uh, Absolutely. Like, is there, like, can you give me an example of how that that, that works in, in your field? For me, City Hall is, is a really good example because... There was one area where you had an 18th century feature, a uh, cistern to store water, which was, again, repurposed. You had multiple layers and multiple populations all throwing their garbage in this same deposit. And if we hadn't paid attention to very slight shifts in the changes of the soil as the artifacts were coming out and being excavated and slight shifts in the change of the construction at the upper levels of this feature, we wouldn't have been able to sort the whole thing out to, yeah, okay, so it was a cistern that was used for the almshouse in the 1700s, and then they were no longer using this cistern. So when they built City Hall, they were depositing garbage into it, but then they built over it and put another structure on top of it, but still used part of that original structure. And then later on, some more construction workers came in and they threw their garbage into it. And then just it keeps like interlocking and cut, you know, they cut part of it in half. And so. And so if you didn't keep track of those minute details when you're higher up in the site, you're not going to have them as you dig deeper down and you're going to have no idea what you've just dug to. You lose some of the fine level detail of the story then. Yeah. So and, and that's ultimately what it comes down to. If you think as human beings, we exist in these a relatively grand scheme of everything, grand scheme of the universe. We are a millisecond of larger time. Like if you look at human history compared to the whole history 
of the earth. Or if you look at the history of the United States compared to world history, ancient Egypt, we're this tiny little piece of it. So our memories and what we know, it's big to us in our day-to-day experience, but it's really small, minute. It's like the devil is in the details. So how often do people bring up Indiana Jones in conversation with you? Very often. <laughs> uh, so um, I remember, Is that like the first thing everyone asks, at the, aside from the boneheaded dinosaur question? Well, it's usually one of two ways. You either get the joke of, oh, about dinosaurs, or you get the joke about Indiana Jones. Okay. And um, archaeology is nothing like Indiana Jones. Um, you don't have a gun at every site? No <laughs> guns. Um, and, and, you oh, know, at least a whip. No, no, not quite. Not even? No, okay. Though one uh, city official did make some random comment about, yeah, not Indiana Jones, no Nazis. And I was just like, really? Did we really just say this? Because um, people just can't help themselves um, to make the Indiana Jones comparisons. Uh, but yeah, no, it's nothing like that. So it. that's a little bit of a sore point for the... I don't think of it as a sore point because you know what? I'm going to say almost every single one of us archaeologists have all watched Indiana Jones and it's fun and we like the movies. Uh, I mean, who doesn't like Indiana Jones? It's fun. Uh, But it's, you know, it's very technical. And there are days, weeks where you find nothing. Um, You know, someone who works for Chrysalis, we had all gotten together recently, and he was like, oh, I had my first artifact find since November. Um, Hadn't found anything, had had nothing to record since November, and here we are in June because there's often a lot of nothing. But nothing is just as important as finding something because, you know, there's nothing going on or something's completely disturbed. So it's like a lot of hurry up and wait sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Oh, that, that sounds agonizing to me. It, yeah, um, I think that's something you probably get used to um, mm-hmm. as is part of what you do. But then when we do have a discovery or we're working on a really interesting site where there's a lot going on, I, you know, I'd be lying to say that we're not like kids at Christmas because we're just genuinely enthused and excited to be, you know, finding these remnants of the past and what we could potentially learn from them about our ancestors. And and was that part of what made City Hall so interesting, just the sheer volume of stuff? No. No? It it wasn't necessarily the volume. It was the complexity of this property having been, um, you know, I I almost like to think of City Hall Park as everything within a single New York City block. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with City Hall Park. Enough, But it's not a very large site. It, you know, doesn't span a very large area. And most people, they go into City Hall Park and, you know, you've got the fabulous view of the Woolworth Building. You've got this lovely fountain. And you think of it as the spot where the mayor goes to work. Um, But in my mind's eye, I see there were thousands of people living on that one site in that very small area. And they were poor people. They were the unwanted. They were criminals. But also the British soldiers who were barracked there during the revolution because people didn't want the British soldiers there either. But there was so much going on in this very small area. And people 
lived and died on that property. And it's very much their story and how that has evolved. And, you know, I also joke it's in City Hall Park is in a way the original NIMBY, not in my backyard, (laughs) because as development was happening, as more and more people were coming into New York City after the Revolutionary War period, Uh, development was moving and people were moving further up Broadway on either side of City Hall Park. And all of a sudden, people didn't want prisoners and the almshouse, these poor people, right outside, you know, across the street from them. So the city was looking for a new city hall. They closed down the old almshouse. And within 25 years, they essentially remake this property, which used to be on the outskirts of the city and was a place to house the unwanted. And they've convert it into a icon befitting an international city within 25 years. Um, so there's so much more to that story than just so that's what I like best about City Hall because it's a story that we're still seeing today as gentrification is happening, as development is happening and people are moving on. People don't want homeless shelters in their neighborhoods. And this is something that was happening in the 18th century. If you're doing an excavation for a private developer, you know, not just someone who happens to be on a historic site, for instance, who gets to keep the stuff you find? How does that work? The materials, uh, any resources that are found belong to the owner of the property. Okay. So if it is a private development or it's a private homeowner and they have a resource on their property, it whatever materials are in there belong to the property owner. Is Have you ever uncovered something like fabulously interesting or valuable that ended up in private hands? Honestly, no. (laughs) Uh, That might be a good thing. I I have worked for private clients. Um, You know, I've had um, uh, Mm -hmm. clients who I found something on my property and it's really cool and I want to hire you to come and document it and investigate it. And um, and we have. And they're People are fascinated in the history, and I've been asked by um, private individuals to document a history. Um, actually, I think you know what? I take that back. The best example I have is uh, working in the Bowery for private developers on a hotel development site, and we found the remnants of a 19th century beer garden. Oh, really? And it was a fabulous project. The client was not obligated, not in a historic district, was not obligated to do archaeology, but the developer became genuinely interested in the history. They, uh, we did the archaeology, we did analysis, we did a lot of research. There is now an archaeological exhibit in the mezzanine level of the hotel. And so, and we found um, all these great bottles, and we were able to do research and find recipes for the contents of some of these bottles. And uh, one of my side projects is we're going to be uh, working with uh, a friend of mine who recently opened a, um, or is involved in a new distillery in Manhattan, and Historic Districts Council, and we're going to brew the historic bitters. Oh, very cool. Uh, and do an event. So uh, so I take that back about how, so the hotel, the um, family that owned the property, they uh, kept 
all the materials, and they used a number of them in an exhibit in the hotel that talks about the history of the Bowery. I, I like that also because then they can say people have been drinking and carousing in this spot since the 19th they century were. at least. Absolutely. And, you know, and sometimes you make these fun personal connections or I've been fortunate enough to make fun personal connections to a lot of the projects I work on. So when we did this project in the Bowery, I learned doing my own genealogy history that my great grandfather had a business a block and a half away. And I mean, from what I knew of him, I still have his shot glasses. He probably went there and had a cocktail or a drink at this beer garden. How would you say then that digging up New York has changed your relationship to the city? There's a practical side of it in that, uh, which is sort of a funny aside. You know, when people, New Yorkers love to complain, oh, why is there so much construction? Why is so much going on? Well, working on construction projects, I absolutely understand why things take so long in the city. Uh, But from a learning historical perspective, uh, I really see how multifaceted the city has been and It's easy to look at things in a bubble, and we don't even realize that we look at things in a bubble, to look at one aspect of an issue. But all the factors, the physical environment, the natural environment, the people, economic factors, technology, all of it comes together into this multifaceted tapestry, in a way, that is New York City's history. Nothing happens in a bubble. It's constantly, it's dynamic. It is constantly moving and in flux. History is constantly happening. You can almost make the analogy of like, uh, was it chaos theory or the the wings of a butterfly butterfly in Beijing? The the butterfly effect. Yeah, creates a hurricane in Miami or whatever. But that is so true of the smallest bits and pieces of New York City's history. And usually when we learn about history in school, we're learning about big names and big events, famous people. But the reality is, you know, George Washington did not run the United States or fight the revolution by himself. There were all these people. And archaeology gives us a chance to learn a little bit about the everyday experiences of those people. It gives us a chance to, um, if we do it right, if we do history right, we get to look at all the different components that come together, causative factors that, you know, have created this amazing city that we have today. I mean, great example is New York City would not be the New York City that it is today if it were not the outer boroughs having farms. And all the agricultural development that was happening in Brooklyn and Queens was essentially to feed the population of New Amsterdam and lower Manhattan so they could focus on business. Um, So it's, you know, all these direct relations, yet it's easy to just look at Manhattan or just look at Brooklyn. But they're working together. And you're piecing together all the little fine details so we can understand more fully of how that happened. Yeah. Who are the people that were, you know, basically little bits and pieces of the works, kind of like all the little mechanisms. Do you ever do work on farms? Farms in New York City, former farms in New York City. (laughs) Uh, Is that different? Yes and no, uh, because many of the former farms in New York City are now within city streets or they're within parks. I think what's different is having grown up in New York City, being an urban kid. uh, The first time I ever was, you know, excavating farm objects, materials. I'm like, 
why why do you have white glass eggs? I mean, they're glass. They're eggs. What are these used for? I had no idea what hen-laying eggs were. Uh, so it's just <laughs> what, like... It, what, are, what is a hen-laying well, egg? Well, apparently... It, well, and it's also, it's a funny story because in the early days of the internet, we found these white glass eggs and we're like, well, what are these? We had no idea. And someone's like, well, what kind of archaeologists are you? Those are hen-laying eggs. And my response is the kind of archaeologists that grew up in New York City. <laughs> I, I, I have no experience with chickens. And um, apparently if your hen is not producing eggs, you can put this under your hen. She thinks she's laid a couple of eggs, so she lays more. It's just like coaxing them. Yeah. And, this is the kind you know, of, yeah, I and, don't blame you. And, but kid from New York City, I had no frame of reference for that. Uh, you know, what's my frame of reference growing up in New York City? It's you know, it's a forest of skyscrapers. It, it's, it's a the, sea of concrete. The beer bottles that you found in, in the Bowery that time. <laughs> that I that, can understand. But it's just like, oh, yeah, there there were cows. Uh, you know, there there were cows all over the place. But that's the kind of stuff that, again, paints that picture you're talking about is you're yeah. you're saying, oh, OK, this is this is the kind of agrarian society that existed. Where where was the hen laying at? Where, where were Those were in southern Brooklyn, last neighborhood before Rockaway, a neighborhood called Marine Park. Oh, wow. So you so you can say back in the 18th or 19th century, Marine Park was not the even. The historic, a historic house I work with in Marine Park, they first got running water in 1926. Oh, wow. Exactly. <laughs> so it's just like, and but that's something you never think of when you think of New York City. It's, there were areas in New York City that did not have running water in the 1920s. And yeah, there are areas that didn't have running water. And you just... And we would just never know that unless And you would never know that unless someone is really actively looking at the history, trying to piece together that continuum of growth and development of a city, of a family, of a property, a I, family within a property. I like that your your job both means filling in the story, but also complicating it. Because it means that you're you're finding, well, actually, uh, you know, progress wasn't this straight line. You know, we didn't, people did not have indoor plumbing necessarily in this place they where you didn't. think they would have. And, you know, let's face it, New York City has a very uh, interesting history with water in general. The water was essentially undrinkable. I mean, if you think about it, New York City, we're nothing but a bunch of small islands. And lower Manhattan, I mean, if you go and dig a hole like a little bit off the beach— what water are you getting? Are you going to drink that water if you're at the beach? No, it's salt water. But think about it. If you're digging wells along the shorelines where you're settling in Manhattan, it's going to be brackish, dirty water. You're drinking the East River. Oh, It's like, <laughs> who wants to drink the water out well, of the East how, River? How bad could that have been before we did to the... Made, I feel like we it made It was still East salt water. Was, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's it, was, it, it, it wasn't potable. You couldn't yeah. drink it. So you had to build your wells further inland, um, Mm -hmm. as close to the center of the island as you could. But more often than not, they were importing water from other areas. They had one fresh water source um, on Manhattan Island, and that was the Collect Pond. But that was also where they put all their industry, the tanneries and the butchers. So they were polluting the only source of fresh drinking water. So they were increasingly needing to bring water in from other areas. So in in South Street Seaport, we found a bottle. It contained mineral water from 1798 from Germany, imported bottled water from Germany in in 1798, sorry, in 1798. 
just to clarify, the bottle did not still have the water in it. It did not still have the water in it. But it had a seal on it, and we were able to identify it to a spring in Germany. And the style of the bottle and the seal dated it to the late 18th century. This is Bottled water. This is making me wonder what conclusions archaeologists will uh, draw from the giant pile of lacrosse cans I'm depositing every day in, in my... Exactly. And all our plastic that's not going to biodegrade. All our plastic water bottles. I mean, are you excited f- to find trash? Fascinating. Like, is that like if you find a oh, trash? Come on, bottle. one man's trash is another person's treasure. Let's let's go with the cliche. Yeah. You you can learn so much from garbage, and ultimately, that's what you find. You find lost and discarded objects, and it's the lost and discarded objects that are helping to put together the story. Um, ideally, we will find them in a confined location. Uh, another great question: What did you do with your trash before we had the Department of Sanitation? What did they We do? didn't always have the Department of Sanitation, so people used to bury their trash in their backyard and or throw it into the privy. When you didn't have indoor plumbing, you went to the bathroom in the outhouse. And it was also a great place to throw your garbage. And so you can learn a lot. Now, all of that changes as you get further and further away from the past, closer to the present, and we have all these massive landfills where you're getting the garbage from everywhere and you have to look at it on a larger level. At that point, it becomes about averages, and you're just saying, what what were these people like in general? think about what is buried in fresh kills in Staten Island. I don't want to think about that. (laughs) All right. But it would be a whole fascinating study. Or right off of the Belt Parkway, there was a, a garbage dump, a landfill that was active into the 1970s. Would you personally want to excavate that kind of thing? No. How would, how would you even, would you even have, like, how would you? Too recent. <laughs> okay. All right. This like is, the 18th and 19th century. What is the weirdest thing you've ever found on a site? The weirdest and oddest thing we ever found um, on a site would be from a deposit at City Hall Park. It, we didn't know what it was initially, but we learned um, one of the crew was volunteering at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia and started putting, you know, in pieces of information together. And we found a bone internal irrigator, also known as a douche. Oh. Um, at City Hall Park. And what year was that from? Early 1800s. During the period when they were constructing City Hall Park, it's from a deposit where we believe it was a single episode. Um, The materials were all dumped in rapid succession, um, likely from some sort of party or a feast based on the various items and the time frame of the deposit. But there are evidence of two objects, one complete. Two douches. Mm Mm-hmm. That would be the weirdest. This has been a really fun conversation. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to Working. If you liked the episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you didn't or have questions or comments, please send us an email at working at slate.com. Please, we really, really do love emails, and we would love to hear from you. The producer on the show is the inimitable Jessamine Molly, and a special thank you to Justin D. Wright for our ad music. Of course, I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and join us next week for a new episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>